So it's not a why football happens react show because we're pretty late on the reaction to the Euro 2020 final from last Sunday. But myself, Ollie Wilson and Paul McDonald sat down where we did have a break this week just to talk about the fallout from the competition, the final, of course, the dreaded England penalty curse and some more reflections on our predictions that we made before the tournament. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter to stay up to date for every single time that we drop a podcast here at Why Football Happens. It's podcast underscore WFH. That's podcast underscore WFH. Let's get into it. He was never going to do it, Southgate, because of the way he set up in pretty much every game in the tournament. But I, I do feel that after that early goal, from Luke Shaw, I, th- I felt like Italy were there for the taking in the first half. I felt that um, they were a little rattled by how Wellinger they started and they didn't really know how to react going a goal behind. I feel like if Southgate had been tactically astute enough, let's just call it that, to go for the jugular at that point, I think there was an opportunity for England to go and win the game in the first half. And... Um, it took Italy 25 minutes to really get going in that game and even gain some territory, let alone create any chances. And I do think that will be the the big forgotten moment or the big missed opportunity for me from that game is at 1-0, Italy were, were, were rattled. But the formation was set up in such a way that it didn't really, it wasn't really conducive to allow England to go for the juggler. And Southgate's general negativity and pessimism towards football meant that he was happy to sit back at 1-0 and just see if they could hold on. And I think that's what ultimately cost him the tournament. I don't feel necessarily that England sat back. The opening 20 minutes or so, England were by far the more aggressive side, as you say. Italy were, were rattled. But I didn't necessarily think that, that England sat back. I mean, it's a wonderful goal that Shaw scores. And, and Kieran Trippier in the movement down that right sideline is fantastic. And there was no reason why that couldn't be replicated again through through those opening 20 minutes. And just not enough chances were created. I don't know whether it was England and Southgate not going for the jugular or England in general. We see it so many times with teams that maybe aren't used to being in this sort of situations in a final where you score early and you think, oh no, I've I've got something to defend. And it's more of a mental game than actually anything to do with how necessarily England were tactically set up because we, we saw from the get-go that that was a formation that was able to penetrate because it was the perfect formation to me to counteract the 4-3-3 that, that Italy have and particularly try and prey on Emerson, the left-back, coming in, filling in for Spinazzola. I, I just think it was more, again, a headspace kind of thing for England because they're not used to being in this sort of situation. And there's, there's a, an element of that. You're right. I 100% agree. But I think the, the, the end result is a lot more palatable if you've not got Grealish, Sancho, Foden, etc., Sitting on the bench, um, I'm, I'm 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 referencing here. If you're talking about an England team from hell, even five years ago, right? You're talking about a team that was really lacking in attacking talent. It was relying on an Asian Wayne Rooney still. Um, a, a team like that to set up in this kind of manner in a big game, I think people would understand, would appreciate. I just think it's difficult for people to, to accept. And this was always going to be the case, by the way. We can always talk in hindsight and say, well. Everybody will will accept negative tactics to a point, and the same goes. The same applies for any team. Um, when they're working, people will accept them when they're working, and they're always going to criticise them when they don't. And in this case, they didn't. And I feel as if that that was why. I think the problem is you've got an array of attacking talent that, in ten years' time, we will look back in this tournament and 
uh, after Sancho has probably had a dynasty at Man United, and when you look back and say, oh yeah, remember Sancho was on the bench for six to seven games of that tournament? That was weird. Mm. And, and that's that's what I'm getting at. I think the way the Southgate set up is a lot more acceptable if you don't have that, those guys sitting there. But they do. He didn't use them, and that's on him. And um, I don't really want to get into the specifics of the penalties, to be honest, because I don't think there's a lot in that. I'm, I mean, Southgate brought these guys on, trusted them. I, I think Sancho's only missed one penalty ever in a professional game. Guys obviously wanted to hit these penalties and they missed. That's that game on. I've got more of a problem with the concept of allowing the game to run the penalties. Um, but I'll get to that in a minute. Give, give me your thoughts on on Sancho, Grealish, Foden. Would, uh, well, I've I've never bought into this idea that Jack Grealish is the England saviour. I think he's like the ideal super sub. I mean, let's let's accept it. Like Jack Grealish made his name off one FA Cup semi final. I think it was against Arsenal, where it, where he was superb. Um, and uh, or was it the FA Cup final? But at that point, Grealish was very much a, a guy with all the flicks and tricks, but reeked of immaturity. And I think we saw that during lockdown when he ended up putting, uh, getting done for drink driving, having a car crash or whatever during lockdown. I mean, Grealish is, to me, very much the unfinished article. He's a He stands out massively in that Aston Villa side because it's a solid Villa side, Premier League caliber side, but he is the exceptional player in it. But I think compared to the likes of Foden, Mount, uh, Jane and Sancho, he, he wouldn't be any of those players at the moment for me into that England starting 11. So Grealish was the best super sub that England could have had. I mean, I was surprised, I think, as you were, that Jane Sancho didn't play as much as, as we thought, particularly in the final when Mount was so ineffective uh, compared to the rest of the front three. There's no reason that Raheem Sterling uh, shouldn't be in the starting 11. He's a great player. Uh, I think you have the attacking tools on the bench that Southgate can use, um, but I also think he's looking for balance. And I, I think that's maybe to do with Southgate not wanting to be too aggressive and looking and just kind of not putting all the chips in one big attacking basket in that moment. I mean, he's never going to make changes in the first 20 minutes when you can potentially put your foot on the neck of Italy. But as the game wore on, I think extra time is when I was disappointed that Southgate doesn't get more aggressive at that point because Italy looked far more tired at times and were certainly slower and more patient in their build-up, whereas England were looking to spring on counters quite a lot in extra time, it felt. Um, this is all watching it off, a, off an iPad on a on a dodgy internet connection, I'd hasten to add. So I, uh, my view of the game in, in real time wasn't exactly perfect. But but that's when you should have, in extra time, got really aggressive and brought brought all guns on blazing, which I thought he was doing when we initially saw Rashford and Sancho looking set to come on with about three minutes to go in, in extra time. My issue with this is that, as I was getting to, alluding to earlier there, um, penalties are not a lottery. They are not by any stretch of lottery. And anybody says that they are is a liar. Uh, they are a specific skill set. The only thing that you can't replicate is the pressure of the moment. And to put people, to put your entire tournament in the hands of that situation, I think is, I think it's too easy for coaches um, to play for that scenario because it allows them to get out of jail free card. Mm. My tactics didn't lose us the game. The penalty takers lost us the game. And that, to me, I think in a lot of cases with coaches, let's just play for penalties. It absolves them of any responsibility of the tactical performance of the team in the game because it ultimately came down to, in inverted commas, the lottery of penalty kicks. Nobody in their right mind should be playing for penalties. And I think both teams did. 
I, I don't think that Italy should be absolved from that either. They played for penalties too by the end. And I, I just think it's really, it's very convenient for some coaches. And don't get me wrong, at this tournament, we have saw actually a lot more games concluded in extra time than we generally see in the Champions League or any other tournament that has um, extra time in it. But I do feel that, 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 that in the big moments, let's just get to penalties, guys, because you'll feel sympathy for, for missing. I'll get absolved of responsibility because I'm the coach that didn't lose the game. Everybody goes home happy. And given England's atrocious penalty record uh, across decades, um, I just I just think that feel, feels like a really strange choice to um, to go to, to go down that route. Because let's face it, England had one shot on target in the game, and that was in the first two minutes. I I understand it though in in the final, particularly when it's these two sides meeting. Because so Italy played for penalties in the semi final against Spain without a doubt going into extra time because they were under the cosh and all they could do was try and hold on at that point because Spain were were controlling the tempo with their possession play and Italy were just trying to not get caught out and smother in the um in the final third and stifle Spain who without a number nine were always going to have that problem. In the final though, you saw it a number of times in extra time. There were some wayward moments from both teams with possession in the middle of the park and defences kind of pushed quite high up that there were opportunities for very quick breaks back behind the opposition and straight away could have been potentially an on-goal were it not for a poor touch or or a very good challenge. I mean, you saw Chiellini tracking back an extra time and making some wonderful challenges and not looking his age at all as he was still defending to the last. And I think there was that fear of... This game is so finely poised and these are two excellent defences that going for broke in extra time is such a big risk reward, particularly when both teams also have great attacking prowess and, and, and plenty of speed, England more so than Italy. But we have seen a far faster uh, quality attacking football from, from Italy than I, than I can really recall at major tournaments in the last few years. So in that sense, I understand both managers not wanting to go for the jugular in those moments because there's a huge risk reward for that. And and would Southgate have been called naive for being so brazen with trying to get all the attacking guns on and not play for penalties, particularly when England, from the sounds of it, as you say, haven't been treating it like a lottery. They've been treating it like a science. And this is the thing that I don't think you can ever say, though, that, that penalties are like a science because all of those five penalty takers would have all been judged to have been the most accurate, the best at it, and it... But there's still that equation element that comes in of handling the moment. And that's but, just but the Oli, difference maker. So it's never a science. It is still partly a lottery because you don't know how these players are going to react in it. But Ollie, would you rather that Gareth Southgate went for the win in extra time or, or just decide to wait and play for penalties? I don't think anybody would have criticised them for going for it. I don't think anybody would have. And I think, I think that therein lies the problem. It's just too easy to allow him as a coach to do that. Um, do you think Italy, Italy continued to Italy? I Italy continued to try and attack, and they had some chances in extra time. I don't think they, I don't think they were too concerned about playing for penalties either. But I do think that it's just again, it's just a missed opportunity for England. And what if you if you look at the tournament as a whole yet again, if you look at all the stuff that we discussed on the, the previous pod about the the way that the the fixtures are fallen in their favour. The way in which they've played six out of seven games at home, the way that the group stage worked out for them, um, the way that they have been on occasion fortunate, whether that be via refereeing decisions or things going their way, um, particularly um, from an attacking perspective, it's never going to fall for, for them like that ever again. It just, it just, <laughs> you cannot have the cards stacked more in your favour 
And I think once the dust settles, we'll look, they'll look back on this tournament in England and think, if we're not going to win it then, when are we going to win it? And, th- and that kind of that kind of flies in the face of what I said in the previous pod, where I said I was worried about this generation of England players and, and potentially setting up a, de- a dynasty for themselves. And I do think they are going to be extremely dangerous in every tournament they go into. I don't think I don't think that the the, the intensity of the heat in Qatar is any real factor, considering most of the games will be in super air conditioned stadiums. So I don't think that plays into it. Um, so I do think they are going to be a threat going forward in, in major tournaments, but. How much more of a threat would they have been if they got this one under their under their belt? And I think that's something that we'll never know. You'd add the intimidation factor and the the England bottle it in penalty shootouts uh, narrative wouldn't continue. That's for sure. Uh, if well, it might have continued if, it, if they hadn't taken it to a penalty shootout. Obviously, if they got it done in either normal time or in extra time. Do you think maybe with with England as well because? They focused so much. I mean, it was even talked about at the last World Cup after the Columbia game, how England are really focused on training and getting everybody prepared for taking penalties in a shootout. Have they focused too much on it to some extent? And that's why there's that element of confidence in those moments of, well, if we go to penalties, we are going to be the best prepared team for penalties. We should be able to get this done on penalties still. Because they are so sure of the science behind it all. The honest answer is I don't I don't know. Um, I think the answer lies in between like Ben Ben Littleton's um, incredible penalties book. I would I, I couldn't recommend it more highly. He goes and speaks to the likes of Baggio and stuff like that. But he also speaks to scientists about this kind of thing. I think he would attest as well that the you've got you've got two schools of thought on this. You've got the likes of Sven Goran Eriksson who said that his England teams didn't practice penalties because they couldn't replicate the pressurized moments of it. That is something that I. I think we both agree with. And then you've got other people who think that's naive and think that having a good technique in penalty shootouts is vital and they should practice. I think the answer lies in between what England have done and potentially what Ericsson did. Because yes, you can practice and have good technique. And no, you can't replicate the pressure. So it's about... I think that the, the, the gap there is we've seen tournaments in the past where, where guys have walked up to hit a penalty in a shootout and they've never hit a penalty in their lives. Right? And that to me is like the most bizarre thing ever. Whereas in England's case, with ex- I don't think Saka's hit one in a professional game, but he certainly hit a lot at, at um, youth level and stuff like that. There were a lot; Those five penalty takers were a lot more practised than penalty takers we've maybe seen hit in the past. Guys who's Franco Baresi, for example, in the 94 World Cup. Well, how many penalties mm. has that guy hit in his life? Do you know <laughs> what I mean? I think we've moved towards the point now where we have actually got practised penalty takers. Um, so I think the, the answer between what England did 20 years ago versus what they've done at this tournament probably lies in between. Like, you, like yes, you can't replicate the pressure, but you, you can get yourself an exemplary technique. Um, and I do think goalkeepers are getting better at penalties, with the exception of David De Gea, who's, who seems to still <laughs> suck at it. Most most other goalkeepers, they have ways of, of dealing with, pen, with penalties now and ways of psyching out forwards and dancing on their line and doing a, an abundance of research into the takers themselves to know what's going to happen. I mean, that, that goes all the way back to Jens Lehmann in 2006 against Argentina with a little bit of paper in his, in his sock, knowing which way Cambiasa was going to go. That times that level of research by a thousand now because they've got entire teams of people that do that stuff. So I think all these factors come together to suggest that, yes, you should practice, but whether but you, you can't rely on it. And I guess we, we both agree on that. You can't rely on penalty kicks be a sure thing because anything could happen. I mean, hell, 
I mean, if Italy could not have set up a more dream scenario than Jorginho walking up to hit the winning penalty and the guy missed. So that ju that just goes to show that like you can do as much planning as you like, but some, th some things just don't work out in your favour. I was going to say, we were cooing about Jorginho and his ability to take penalties after the Spain game and it seemed like he could never miss a single one and then he steps up in the final and does miss it. So it does show that... You know, it's never guaranteed however good these players are. Can we just have a quick word on Italy as well before we start looking back at the tournament as a whole? Because, I mean, to me, we've had, what, 15 minutes of discussion about this already here. But at the end of the day, the best team in this tournament ended up winning and the best team over the 90 minutes, 120 minutes in the final ended up winning. Yes. Football suddenly became very, very simple when you break it down that way. Italy have been great and even with... You know, losing key key players, key injuries, particularly obviously Spinazzola. But you look at Chiesa had to come off in the, in the final as well after he was tormenting England, and and they still got it done. And it wasn't just, I mean, Bonucci, Chiellini, that back line were excellent, and it was Italian organized, rigid defending. But it was also so much more than that, as I touched on earlier. This is a really good Italy side that knows how to attack under Mancini, and the build that he has done since taking over in 2018. You can talk about you've got you're beating only who's in front of you with, with lesser teams in the Nations League, etc. But now this is an Italy team that's won a major tournament and in very good fashion. Well, you've got to say they beat Belgium, they beat Spain, and they beat England. They beat three out of the the top seven or eight teams in in the in the reckoning for the tournament to get there and win it. So yes, absolutely, they are the, they were the champions. They beat more better teams than anybody else. Um, they are surprised. Some members of this pod, I would say, suggest <laughs> with their performances, but um, I I look back on this tournament with a bit of regret that I didn't watch more of Italy before it, because I think if I had, I might have I might have had a different opinion of them. I I by no manner of means were, were writing Italy off by any stretch. I thought they would go deep. I thought I thought they would go to the semis, but I, I didn't think they would win it. I didn't think they had the attacking players to win it. And I'm actually I'm not even still convinced that they did. Or they do. I think that Chiesa's form coming off the bench was a real boost for them. A real, real boost. Um, and I think that's potentially been the, the, the difference in their tournament, bringing him into the fray. I think Immobile got worse as the tournament went on. Mm. Um, I think, uh, obviously, Berardi was supplanted by Chiesa because he didn't do much when he was in that position. And I think Insigne's ability to blow equally as cold as he can hot did hurt Italy at times, although I, I, I will give credit to Insigne, I thought he turned a lot of uh, the momentum in the final. I think he was the, the one guy, particularly around about 55, 60 minutes, he put his foot on the accelerator and really pushed Italy forward in that game and I've got a lot of respect for that. I've also got a lot of respect for the guy who can smash the ball all over the stadium for 89 minutes but still want to come back in the 90th and try again. I mean, that, sound like, that may sound like a silly thing but there's a lot to be said for that. That's... That's the old uh, centre-forward trait, isn't it, of uh, I missed six chances in the game, but I'll score the seventh. Mm. He's got that in him as well, and that's something that you look for in an in a, in a attacking player that's never going to go missing for you in a big match. And I think whilst Immobile went missing, I think, against Italy and Spain, and probably even against Belgium when the, when the going got tough, I think Insigne and obviously Chiesa as well stepped up and, and filled that gap, that attacking gap that I thought they might have had uh, prior to the tournament. But... My only concern over Italy going forward is your 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 core there of, of Berucci and Chiellini. Have they maybe got a World Cup left in them? Maybe. Then after that, what you're looking at, I, I'm not seeing a mass amount of Italian centre-backs coming through that have that level of sophistication that both those guys have got. And you might say, well, 
that take it would take a decade to build up that, that level of sophistication and talent. But it's all about who comes next, and um, that will be the big the big problem for Italy going forward. Who comes next? They had a they had a ready made replacement in Donnarumma for for Buffon. Do they have the ready made replacements for Bonucci and, and Chiellini? We'll, we'll, we've got eighteen months till the World Cup to find out if they do. Well, they they do have one in uh, and somebody who I thought. Actually, Italy could have gone to a back three with and played in, in Alessandro Bastoni, the inter centre back, who is is only twenty two, and he's he is absolutely awesome. If you've seen him in Syria, uh, and he seems like the guy who uh, either Bonucci or Chiellini is going to pass the mantle on of being the leader. And obviously, if he can create a bit of a relationship with Bonucci, at least in the next eighteen months or so, that could pay dividends going into a World Cup with Chiellini at thirty six. Um, yeah, I completely agree with you. Italy centre forward wise, they, they need to still solve that because. Immobile got worse. Belotti was a disaster in the final as well. It just doesn't move. And anybody that's ever played golf with an annoying person that likes to quote Instagram stuff, like Lorenzo Insigne, as you mentioned, is that guy who's got the goldfish memory. And I've got a mate on the golf course that will always say, hey, Ollie, what's the, uh, what's the what's this animal with the shortest memory? The goldfish. It's five-second memory. So just forget about it and be a goldfish on the golf course. And it's the thing that will drive you insane when you're playing golf. But it does make sense. Just keep forget about what happened a moment ago and keep going. And Insigne showed that. He's he's not got that long left in the tank as well, though, I don't think, Insigne. He's, he's, been, there, he's there, you know, yeah. Yeah, he's been around for a while. But at least they have Chiesa um, and others. You know, Bernadeschi's still got a few years in him. And actually, I thought it was quite good coming off the bench, especially after the awful year he's had with uh, with Juventus. And, and and in the middle of the park, we haven't mentioned his name yet, Jorginho. I mean, Chelsea fans look so stupid when they were bemoaning his first eight months in the Premier League and, and saying how bad a player he was and, and he wasn't good enough and it was all just Sarri bringing his mates across from Napoli. And he, he is phenomenal as a playmaker in the heart of the pitch. There's not many people that I've thought, God, that is taking the Pirlo mantle a little bit, isn't it? And he really produced that in this tournament. I thought he was superb. Yeah, agreed. Um, I, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the kind of the guy who shits shits on a good idea, but um, I don't want to see him win the Ballon d'Or for Christ's sake. Come on, <laughs> I, I mean, I was, I was unhappy. That, I was unhappy that Modric won it. To be honest, even though Modric was superb that year, Ballon d'Or should be about exceptional individual talent, and um, whilst he is extremely talented at what he does, I think I could find another. 25, 30 players like him. The uh, the Ballon d'Or is going to go to Messi though. Now he's won his trophy with Argentina, so don't worry about that, Paul. Like that's I hope so. That's locked in now. I hope so. He deserves it. Um, let's anyway. let's look at broader things from the tournament and obviously the the previews that we did and and some ridiculous comments that some people made about Turkey and Italy and all such things. Uh, f- from the tournament overall, my only thought is it- international football is far better and enjoyable to watch in these sorts of spurts than club football is as a monotonous drone at the moment because there was so much less naff talk and chat and overreaction to everything throughout this tournament and it was just enjoyable to keep things on the pitch as opposed to hours and hours of discussion of it and they tried they really did try at times but it was all about just the 22 men for 90 minutes on a football field I really enjoyed the international tournament I thought I was going to be drained about by football after last season and it wasn't the case at all no that's because international football is the, is the ultimate level of of keeping things competitive outside of the nfl you mm. are stuck with the players you've got landed with in your nationality you can't just be psg and uh 
get your owner on the board of UEFA so that you can go and buy six players a summer or, or, or City going to buy Grealish and Kane. It's an embarrassment. Foot, club football at the moment is a total embarrassment. And the people who are supporting those kind of regimes should be utterly ashamed of themselves because it's just utterly destroying the very nature of competition. That's why people enjoyed this tournament. And that's what inherently stupid people don't understand. That This is what made this competition great because you've got seven, eight, nine competitors going into the tournament and it's not based on who's got the most money, who's got the most influence. It's based on who was born in that country and what that country's football and nationality and heritage is all about. And that's why international football will always beat club football for me. Even as uh, as we get deeper into this era of uh, ownership from uh, petro, petro states, it's, it's ultimately based on your nationality and where you're from. And that's what drives the uh, interest. And like 10 years from now, Belgium might be rubbish again, but they've mm. had the golden generation. And that's what, that, that, that's what the peaks and troughs of international football are all about. And that's just something that, like the likes of the Super League, what, what, the, 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 the entire concept of that Super League is set in exact opposition to that, that idea of anybody can come from anywhere and succeed. And that's the way club football is right now. And I don't see it changing anytime soon. And it allows you, as as we touched on, the, the shocking moments. You know, the the Switzerland knocking the French out in the in the first knockout stage. I mean, club football, okay, that's fine, but it, it doesn't seem as like that as is as likely to happen anymore in club football. You know, you look at things like FA Cup runs and stuff. And if that was a, a knockout tournament in club football, France would have been putting out their second string side that you imagine against Switzerland stuff like that. So it, yeah, it, it there's so much more an opportunity for the unexpected to take place in international football. And it genuinely most of the time comes from places that are really unexpected as opposed to people selecting sides that they really do think going into a tournament are dark horses. And, and I'm not rubbing it in about the Turkey thing here when I say that, but just in general, you know, the pundits will pick a dark horse, but the genuine dark horse that goes deeper than most people think is rarely the one that actually gets picked as the dark horse before the tournament begins. Right, so let's, let's do a deep dive into this, Ollie. I listened to our preview podcast. Here's some things that we got right. Okay. Let's start with the positives first. Um, if you ignore uh, Mr. Jacobs, you are very much in the Italy camp from the very beginning. We all, Stephen, uh, Ben and I, all tipped up Denmark as being dark horses beyond the Turkey conversation that we had, which went obviously very well. Both, both, both um, Ben and I tipped up Karim Benzema to the top scorer, and I think Benzema would have been top scorer had France got through that game. I don't think there's any doubt about that. He was on, he's on four goals anyway, and five ultimately won it. So you would have expected him to get at least another one in the rest of the tournament. So that was a pretty good shout. Um, let's 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 focus on the bad ones because those are much more fun. <laughs> the unanimous vote of Turkey. There'll be there'll be books right, written about this in ten years' time. It'll be like a Turkish journalist will go back to discover just what the fuck happened at Euro 2020 because I I, I haven't read anything about it yet, but I'm I'm very keen to find out what happened there because that just that that just wasn't down to personnel how badly those 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 guys played. Um, as as we mentioned in in the Italy podcast about it, that Turkey team were knackered after 50 minutes of that game, like shattered, dead on their feet. Mm. I have heard some rumours that they were in a very intense training camp just out of the, the, the back end of the season. So a lot of the players hadn't even had a proper rest yet and they were right in the intense fitness camp and it's probably came back to bite them in the tournament. Um, but I'm not trying to defend their very, very bad prediction because 
Would you say they were the worst team in the tournament? I think they probably were. Definitely. The, and aesthetically as well as results-wise, they were awful to watch. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, relative to expectations, you would say that they were the worst team. And uh, yeah, that one's on us. Other bad ones, um, I think that Stephen tipped up Portugal to do well, which I mean, like it's international football and it's knockout stage football. And that game against Belgium, I think could have went either way, particularly in the second half. So it's not a, a terrible description of, of or, or prediction rather. I think that we all pretty much nailed the Dutch in terms of what we expected them to do. I think we probably slightly overrated what Germany were capable of. Hmm. Although again, that's a game that was settled ultimately in moments. And I'm trying to think of some other ones. I think that I said that I thought England would do well. I said that I was worried about them from the very from the very outset, and that was proven because I was worried for the past two weeks, the last two weeks of the tournament. Um, I think that we said that Spain would probably bounce back from the XG trouble that they'd been having, and they ultimately did, although it wasn't enough to go all the way. So I do think we got some things right, and I do think that the things we got wrong were not the only ones who believed that, that those things might come to pass. So um, it's always good to call out your, your horrible, grievous errors, but I do think when you're speaking for an hour on every conceivable um, computation of what can happen, the chances are you're going to get a fair few things badly wrong and yeah, Turkey's going to be on this podcast's headstone when it ultimately ceases to be. <laughs> Mate, there are a number of journalists that will have uh, died on that that hill of predicting Turkey as the dark horse going into Euro 2020 and just wasn't to be. Going out of the tournament very quickly, my just another last thought is um, Spain, for me, I think are, if they find a, a proper centre forward, I don't know how you look past them looking as one of the favourites for the... Qatar World Cup because Luis Enrique much like Mancini Luis Enrique quite clearly has a system and a style and knows it very well and knows the pieces that he wants to put together I mean all the Spanish journalists talking about this is an insult to the city of Madrid kind of thing this side because it didn't have any Real Madrid players in it but Luis Enrique has the balls to say well it's not about getting the players from the star teams and trying to just fit them in wherever I can it's about much like Mancini and the number of you know, Sassuolo players and Atalanta players and such that he tried to get into this team knowing what he wants and who he needs to fill those holes. And and I think Spain showed that perfectly. And if they'd had a centre forward in this tournament, we're not talking about Italy at all. We're probably talking about Spain pasting England all over Wembley, much like Barcelona did to Manchester United back in the Champions League final many moons ago. The only thing I've got to say in Spain is I've never been more sure of anything in my life that barring injury or something taking him off the rails, Pedri's going to be one of the best players in the world for the next 10 years. That's it. There's nothing There's nothing else to say on it. I mean, it's the most obvious thing I've ever seen in my life. Like, I watched pretty much every single Barcelona game last season and Koeman put him in the team very early and you're thinking, hmm, what does, it, what does this mean about Barcelona that they're having to play a 17-year-old in the centre of the midfield? when they've had Xavi, Iniesta, these guys over the years. Is that an indictment of where they're heading as a club at the moment? Of course it wasn't. Of course it wasn't. It was Koeman who took one look at him and went, Jesus, this guy's the future. And maybe you could say Koeman actually played him too much. Maybe there is a case for that, considering he's only just turned 18. But he gives you things in the modern game that other players just can't. Uh, there's a ball progression there. There's a maturity and a calmness for such a young man, which is quite frankly frightening. 
I feel like he's going to wake up one day in the next couple of years and go, holy shit, I play for Barcelona and I played at the Euros. I played more minutes at the Euros for Spain than anybody else. Shit, like what has happened to my, to my life? Um, I, I worry about that, I really do, because he, he plays as if he doesn't care. It's almost equivalent to like, and, and there's no there's no equivalence in quality here, but I do remember when Owen Hargreaves first came into the Bayern team and he was playing in the Champions League final at like 19, 20, and you're just looking at him going, he doesn't even think, look as if he knows where he is or what he's doing here. I don't think he understands the magnitude of this. Such was his calmness and composure. Um, Hargreaves was a good player and he would have been a lot more fondly remembered had, had, had he not had all those injuries. But I just look at Pedro and I think the same thing. I just feel like I look at him and think, this kid um, is just teaching people around him how to play football. And I don't see a player in any other, certainly any other European team at the moment at that level, at that young an age, who can be so obviously the guiding light for a team going forward. Like it's, England can have Sancho and Foden and Grealish, but you're talking about tactics and formations and systems there. Pedri's such an obviously Spanish player who's always going to be integral to any Spanish system and he's going to be playing a hell of a lot of football over the next 10 years and I'm more than happy to watch it. Italy celebrates, the rest of Europe commiserates. But we are not done here at Why Football Happens. Remember, you can stay up to date throughout the football season as we drop new podcasts by staying abreast with us on Twitter, podcast underscore WFH. That's podcast underscore WFH. Like, rate, review and subscribe to the podcast as well at anchor.fm, Spotify, iTunes and all good podcasting outlets. And we will keep the football discussion coming to you throughout the season. Until next time, take care.